0: Hey, before we dive into today's discussion, I thought I would kick us off with our new segment in which I'll read off a couple of listener responses to the discussion question from last episode i've decided to name this segment of the show search your readings which i feel is pretty fitting involving discussion answers a fun fact before i get into the listener responses here search your readings was actually one of the potential names for this show that came up in the initial brainstorming sessions it was one of my favorite suggestions so i'm glad i finally can incorporate it into the show so let's get into the listener answers the question I had asked was, the tension between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and Pax and Rahara has been prominent early on. Is Qui-Gon right to wish Obi-Wan had a new master? Is Pax and Rahara's mentality of awkwardly trying to work through the tension the better strategy? Or do they all fall short due to lack of communication? And what similarities do you see between the pairs? And right here, I've got a couple of listener answers from Twitter. Connor answered, quote, I think these are really good questions but I think both of these circumstances work well for both characters. I don't think Qui-Gon would be who he is if he didn't see tension in his relationship with his student as a representative that maybe he isn't good enough. Growing up with Dooku, as we saw, clearly showed that he is of a different mind. So I think it shows his sincerity in his perceived failure at the inability to do what all masters find themselves able to complete. As for Pax and Rahara... Pax and Rahara are perfectly awkward, and I love them, and I am so excited to see where this quest takes them. Sean says, quote, Tension is a natural part of learning. While it's easier to learn in comfortable relationships, the relationships that allow conflict allow both parties to grow. Obi and Qui-Gon need to lean more into their difference like Pax and Rahara. Thank you again for submitting these answers. I'm excited to keep the discussion questions coming and to continue to hear more about what you all think. Now, let's get into episode 23 of Outer Rim Reads. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 23 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through various Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In today's episode, we will be covering chapters 4, 5, and the first flashback chapter of Master and Apprentice, and I'm joined today by Sammy from the Sammy Boy and Sammy Plays YouTube channels. Sammy, how are you doing, man? Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show today.
1: Thanks for having me, dude. I'm doing very well. Very excited to finally be on this show, and I'm uh, I'm keen to get stuck into it.
0: Yeah, as am I. I was telling you off air that you know you've literally been on my guest list for potential guests really ever since I started the show because <laughs> you know you I don't think I've ever mentioned this, but you were kind of one of the first people that really encouraged me to start this podcast to begin with. And so, you know, you've always kind of had that honorary guest spot <laughs> and you know, you're also responsible for the show art. I'm just happy to have you on the show man to discuss some some Master and Apprentice. I'm excited.
1: It's an honor man. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Yeah, before we get started with the chapters though, do you mind giving the listeners just a brief background on where you are with Star Wars and how you got involved with the universe and then specifically with Master and Apprentice?
1: So, my dad obviously was of the age where, you know, Star Wars was cool for everyone back then. It was the it was the thing back in the seventies, and uh, <laughs> just growing up, he got me into Star Wars. Um, he's not by any means like a, a hardcore fan, but obviously, yeah, anyone of that age kind of knows the uh, you know a thing or two about Star Wars. So, yeah. he initially got me into it. Funnily enough, even though I'm you know of that prequel sort of age, I actually saw the originals before I saw the prequels because he sort of wanted to see if I would like it before taking me to mm. see it. So I actually saw the uh original trilogy first and then obviously growing up with the prequels they were sort of my favorites at the time um and then yeah i I would say when probably around the time that the force awakens was sort of on its way that was when i truly got into it i was always a fan i always could quote the movies from start to finish but i would say around that time was when it really became like a passion where i was you know reading the novels and sort of learning more about the lore of star wars so Sort of a, a lifelong fan, but yeah, I'd say the last five or six years is when I've truly been into it.
0: I like how you were talking about how your dad got you into it, because that's the same thing with my mom. She grew up with the original trilogy, and you know, the first one that I saw in theaters was The Phantom Menace, but before we even saw the prequels, you know, when they were coming out, my mom made us sure that we saw the originals first, kind of like what you were saying, to make sure that you know, yeah. this, was, uh, this was our thing. So <laughs> that's really awesome. And how did you come along Master and Apprentice?
1: I think it was from the Discord. I feel like it was maybe Charm that sort of mentioned it. And I've heard a lot of people say that, I don't want to say like bad reviews, but people were just sort of saying, oh, you know, it's (laughs) all right, but it's not the best. So I was a little bit like skeptical going in, but funnily enough, I would actually say Master and Apprentice might be my favorite Star Wars novel that I've read so far. So I'm really so stoked that you've uh, chosen it for this season because I get to sort of relive it again. And uh, yeah, that's sort of how I came across. it, just through, yeah, talking to the guys about some novels. And I think I actually asked, you know, what should I read next? I had a bunch of ones on the list and, uh, yeah, everyone sort of pointed me towards Master and Apprentice and that's where we ended.
0: Yeah. I remember there was a lot of hype around the possibility, you know, when the book was first coming out about us finally getting a story about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, and I didn't buy it when it first came out, and I'd heard kind of mixed reviews, kind of what you were saying, that it's it's a decent read, you know, it isn't mind-blowing, but it's it's good, and, you know, when I read it, though, and just how much I love Qui-Gon, I kind of just, like, fell in love with it, mm-hmm. and it is a very different style read, especially, you know, coming from the first season where I covered Thrawn with Timothy Zahn kind of dictating action sequences and building drama uh, within the story for the first three chapters. And then also moving into, you know, four or five and the flashback chapter, Claudia Gray does a good job of building the foundations of the story and the characters before really getting into the thick of the plot. So, which I've really enjoyed. It's a, it's a, change of pace. But I'm glad that you have liked the book as much as you have, and I'm excited to talk about these chapters. They aren't the longest, but there's a lot there. So I'll give my chapter summary for chapter four, and then we can dive right in. Sounds good. Back on Coruscant, Qui-Gon meets with the Jedi Council to discuss the mission on Tef. After Grandmaster Yoda and Mace Windu deemed the huts there to be of no threat, the Council shifts the conversation to Qui-Gon's reported misunderstanding with Obi-Wan. Qui-Gon refuses to put any blame on his apprentice, but sees an opportunity for Obi-Wan to be paired with a more compatible master when Windu offers him a seat on the Council. On the planet Pijal, young Princess Fannery grows increasingly restless with the weight of the Crown's responsibilities. Though she yearns to travel to other worlds, Rail Avaros reminds her of the treaty they're working on that requires her full attention. On the way to meet with Zerka representatives, a guard bursts into the throne room, reporting another attack from the opposition. Realizing the situation is only getting worse, Avaros decides to request help from the Jedi Council. So, before we dive into the details of this chapter you know we get some good information about the council and Qui-Gon and then the situation on Pijal building what are your general thoughts on the chapter before we dive into the finer details of it?
1: I really love this chapter with how you sort of get that insight into the council and especially... Um, you get a bit of insight into Qui-Gon. Qui-Gon's actually one of my favourite characters in all of Star Wars, just the way that he's so unique compared to the other Jedi. He's obviously got his own sort of outlook on everything, and I love just getting a bit of insight into you know him sitting there in the council, and you're actually inside his head sort of knowing what he's thinking about the rest of the council. And obviously in The Phantom Menace, we sort of instantly get an idea that he's not... I don't want to say not too fond of them, but he he obviously has his differences <laughs> with the council... And it just you can straight away say that in the book as well. He's obviously uh, yeah he's he's got his issues with some of the ways that they they do things. So it, yeah, absolutely love the way that you sort of get inside his head a little bit more.
0: In the first few chapters, we've gotten the sense that Claudia knows how to write Qui Gon very well, and this is our first instance of seeing him in this book of him interacting with the council here. And you know, like you said, I don't know if he isn't entirely fond of them, but literally sentences into the chapter. He's disagreeing with Yoda and Mace, kind of brushing aside the conflict on Teth. Where you know we got the, the feeling that, you know, especially in Qui-Gon's conversations with Thurible to end his mission there, that he knows what's going on there can have pretty severe impact on that system, on the planet surrounding, especially with agricultural shipments and how much that means to the people and how exploitative the huts can be and and how much pain and misery that can cause. But right off the bat, you know, Mace is saying, quote, they're petty criminals who try to appear more powerful than they are. And, you know, Qui-Gon disagrees. And my first thought here is, does this show that the council is a bit out of touch with maybe the reality and the needs of the real people in the galaxy that Qui-Gon's out there interacting with. You know, I know that the Huts were stealing these shipments and selling them to struggling planets that weren't part of the Republic. And in doing so, the planets from the Republic aren't getting the food that they need, but what were your thoughts on kind of mace and yoda kind of brushing this off maybe does it show that they are concerned more with the worlds within the republic than the worlds outside of its influence i just thought that was you know right off the bat there's conflict here between the council's perception of reality and qui-gons
1: yeah i i kind of got the same picture from that as well it's it's something that you do see as well throughout the actual the movies they do seem sort of cut off from the world they seem well the galaxy not the world but uh, they seem <laughs> to be just very closed-minded and they they're setting their ways um and that's one thing that obviously Qui-Gon sort of isn't mm. that and that I think that's why they are so you know they have so many differences and so many arguments and stuff like that so you get a sense of that straight away in this chapter that yeah it's literally like in the first few sort of sentences of the chapter that they're already just disagreeing and they're sort of brushing off, you know, what he has to say, which in a way is kind of odd because he was the one who went there on the mission and, you know, he's the one who knows what's going on and they just sort of brush it off straight away. So you almost feel a bit for qui that they send him out on missions and, uh, he comes back with information that should be valued and they just almost brush it off straight away. So you do get a sense of that straight away in this chapter.
0: You know, because he is the one actually going to these worlds, actually interacting with, you know, the people there. And in this case, the the huts there who are directly involved with the situation. But he chooses not to argue, which, uh, you know, props to him. We get the sense here from his thoughts that this is not his first kind of argument or at least disagreement with the council here. But he chooses to, you know, to, to not say anything. And, you know, I guess he knows when to pick his fights, which it seems that there are many of those. With yeah. The, the, the Jedi Council. You know, so he, he stands his ground, maybe silently so. Um, but then we get this kind of shift in topic here where i appreciate the inclusion of the jedi master uh, deppa balaba she didn't really play a, a major role in the movies but she's kind of come to life more in the literature and, and i know a few people who really like her character i know she appeared in queen's shadow so it was cool to see just these other jedi mentioned in these chapters i know that yaddle was brought up i think in in chapter 5 and here we get balaba But she's shifting the conversation to how Qui-Gon had reported this misunderstanding between him and Obi-Wan. And how this isn't the first time that he's brought something like this to their attention. But we again see that Qui-Gon is very unwilling. You know, Obi-Wan is not here. So he could easily just tell the council, just kind of pour the blame onto Obi-Wan, to the council where, you know, Obi-Wan isn't there, so he doesn't need to hear these things. But we see his unwillingness here to blame him, and he he keeps insisting that the blame is is on himself, which I thought it was interesting here that Yoda points out that maybe for them to grow together, Qui-Gon might need to shift some blame onto Obi-Wan, that this is something they have to work with together but we see this time and time again here in these opening chapters that Qui-Gon is so insistent that it's his fault, which should he give some ground here to Yoda, or is this maybe the best move for Qui-Gon to just shoulder 100% of the blame onto himself?
1: I think it goes to show a lot about his character that you can kind of tell through the sort of conversations that he does have his sort of issues with Obi-Wan. I don't know if issues is the right word, but... He obviously sort of has those uh, questions about the way that Obi-Wan does things and the fact that he even thinks that but still he won't blame him at all uh, just goes to show, again, just how unique he is as a Jedi. A lot of others, I feel, wouldn't really act that way. They're obviously very close minded like I said. But the fact that he's so willing to just take it on himself and be the one that's trying to improve, uh, I think it says a lot about him. I do think that Yoda kind of has a point. Like, Obi-Wan is... Mm maybe he needs to give something back as well but yeah it, it says a lot about Qui-Gon the way that he sort of acts in this scene I
0: like how you, you also mentioned that this can't just be a total kind of Qui-Gon giving 100% into this master apprentice relationship with Obi-Wan where Obi-Wan does have to give back. You know, there has to be kind of this mutual growth here. And maybe this also speaks to Qui-Gon's stubbornness, too, because we do get the sense in the movie, especially in The Phantom Menace, how he was very insistent that he needs to train Anakin. So we know that he's stubborn in character as well. So I do think you're right that Yoda has a point here. I think maybe they both have a point In their respective ways, but I think this also speaks to maybe Qui-Gon's stubbornness here where maybe sometimes it's disagreeing with the council just for disagreeing with, you know, just yeah. for disagreement's <laughs> sake, um, maybe. But um, in this next kind of monumental point of this chapter, which I did not see coming. Me either. <laughs> I I, am, I was I'm surprised shocked. if anyone <laughs> did. Yeah. Where Mace Windu offers Qui-Gon a seat on the council. And even, you know, Qui-Gon's surprised. Readers are surprised. I think Qui-Gon actually has this thought, quote, is the council actually making sense (laughs) when they're saying we need some more perspective in the council. So that's why we are offering this opportunity for you. What were your thoughts on on this, this total shift of the plot of the conversation with the council everyone was caught off guard it seemed
1: yeah this was I mean for me this was the hook for me like as soon as I was reading this um, you know I'd enjoyed the start but this was like the sort of bombshell that kept me going with the book and um, I was shocked I didn't know (laughs) I did not see it coming at all and (laughs) especially Windu of all people I feel like he's the most like stubborn the fact that he said like (laughs) we're looking for more perspectives on everything that was yeah I I did not see that coming at all and it, it makes me wonder like how different it would have been if they had Qui-Gon there to actually make them not so close-minded because in the end that was essentially their downfall is that they just were so yeah. stuck in their ways and it's yeah it's one of those typical Star Wars what ifs like what if Qui-Gon <laughs> actually you know was on the council and was helping them with those decisions would they have been so close-minded or would they have actually for once listened to him and actually uh you know, yeah. change their
0: ways. I mean, I could probably have an entire episode series on just the yeah. what if of how things could have been different if Qui-Gon, you know, had the chance to be on the council. And and What I also like about this is that we know from The Phantom Menace that, you know, obviously we know how things end up, yeah. that somehow he rejects the offer, but I also like how even though we know the end result of this offer it doesn't take us out of the moment. It doesn't take us out of the of the story here where, you know, we're still in the thick of Qui-Gon's thoughts where he is actually very excited at this prospect where, you know, in the previous chapter, we had learned that, you know, he has always wanted to create this substantial change in the galaxy. And now he's realizing that, you know, with an opportunity to sit on the council, you know although he's he's saying that he needs some time to meditate on it, he's thinking about the opportunity to be able to, Be in the room to discuss these things with them to help them make the decisions that they do. And this is where I've got to stop you in your tracks. Hey, listeners, this is Editing Andrew. I know what a lot of you Hamilton fans are thinking right now. Past Andrew totally missed a chance to make the joke that Qui Gon could be in the room where it happens. The opportunity was there, but I guess Past Andrew has been spending too much time deciphering ancient prophecies and too little time watching Hamilton. I checked. The archives are complete with a few copies, and I hear Yaddle is a huge fan. So, I'm sorry for past Andrew totally goofing here. Qui-Gon could, in fact, be in the room where it happens. Now, let's get back to the show. And this is kind of comes at a key point where he was just despairing over the fact that no matter how hard he tries to create change in the galaxy, that it seems that things just always remain stagnant in some way. And right off the bat here, this is a chance for him to to be able to kind of change that narrative where you know he's actually excited about the opportunity here.
1: I was actually very surprised by the way that he he showed that he was very clearly interested and in, I remember the part where he sort of leaves that meeting he he's like in a bit of a daze he doesn't know he's like sort mm. of that excited that he he doesn't know what's going on and I I actually found that really interesting because like you said we we knew that he didn't take that role but The way that he was acting actually made me wonder like oh maybe did he take it and then they you know he eventually got stepped down or or something like that it was was really well written to the point that even though i knew what happened i actually started to question if i did know what (laughs) happened because i was starting to think oh like he sounds like he wants to maybe he does and then maybe it doesn't work out or you know so very well written i thought and um the whole thing was just a shock to me i did not see any of it coming
0: I like how you're saying it. It's very well written because, yeah, the the suspense of the moment, the shock of the moment is very real, you know, for Qui-Gon and for us as well. And we do see him kind of steady himself where he he, he thinks, quote, even an invitation to the Jedi Council mustn't go to your head. So we, we see here that he's catching himself, which is good. He, he emphasizes a lot to stay in the here and now, to live in the moment and see what the Force is telling him in the moment. And here we see that he's you know, he was maybe inching to get caught up in the future of what this could look like, which is also a kind of a key theme, you know, in the later chapters of this episode, thinking about the, you know, future and what that could mean for the present and such. But I, I like how you, you also mentioned that he kind of left the room in this, in this daze. And I'm going to read a section from the text here to talk about that. Quote, Qui-Gon walked out of the council chamber into the temple in a strange state of mind. He couldn't call it a daze because this was, in some ways, the exact opposite. Every detail of his surroundings struck him with fresh vividness, whether it was the colorful patterns of inlaid marble beneath his feet, or the scarlet trim on a young Jedi Knight's gown. It was as though the invitation to join the Council had given him new eyes, a new way of seeing the world, one that he would no doubt spend the rest of his life learning to comprehend. And, you know, this is a monumental scene. And I'm wondering, would Qui-Gon be able to do his best work on the council? Or do you think maybe he would be drawn into this, quote, seeing with new eyes mentality, where he would steadily kind of conform to their ways? Like In this moment, when he's talking about seeing with new eyes, my thought was, like, whose eyes is he seeing with here? Is this still Qui-Gon, or is this the Qui-Gon that's being caught up in this offer?
1: That's a really good point. I actually hadn't thought of it like that, in that he... Yeah, he may have gotten caught up in the whole, you know, the honour of being a part of the council and he may have sort of, I don't want to say changed his ways, but he might have been sort of dragged to their level a bit where he's hes a bit more, you know, set in his ways the same way that they are. So, um, yeah, I hadn't really thought of it like that. And that's a very interesting point. I would love to know what would have happened if he if he had, have, you know, taken the seat on the council.
0: Yeah, because my thought was like, he would be able to have some input, right? But it seemed, you know, from what he was gathering, because not every Jedi in the room was visibly pleased with this offer that was being presented to him. So there was, you know, we could tell there was like contention there. And I wonder, could one voice, could Qui-Gon's one voice be enough to create change in the council or would kind of the majority influence him over time? It's, you know, the unknown of the situation where, you know, we don't know what that would look like, which is why it's such a powerful scene. And again, it could just, that, that is a rabbit hole that is worth jumping into, <laughs> but we do not have, <laughs> we don't have the, the time to talk about those possibilities, but such a curveball thrown here where you know coming into this book we have this perception that Qui-Gon is the most different Jedi possible from the mold of the council and here's this opportunity for him to join it and you know he's caught up in it he's thinking about it but he says that he'll meditate and think about it and the scene closes where he's thinking about how this would affect Obi-Wan where so far, despite all of their missteps, all of their, you know, disconnects, he hasn't yet requested a transfer because he knows that it would hurt Obi-Wan and he would blame himself for hurting him, yet he knows that Obi-Wan could be better served with a new master who kind of fits his needs better, and kind of like that conflict remains where the council has permitted him to tell this to Obi-Wan. Uh, but we know here, we're seeing here this conflict where Qui-Gon knows how much pain that could bring Obi-Wan and also himself.
1: Yeah, it's, it's just a very weird situation because, like, we sort of get the picture throughout the start of the novel that he does... Um, I don't want to say he wants the transfer, but he, he feels it's best for Obi-Wan. And he's kind of given this opportunity for, like, an easy way out, really. He he could um sort of <laughs> get what he wants without having to do it in a way that would hurt Obi-Wan. Obviously, it would still... You know, be a disappointment, but at least there's kind of like a, an excuse for that happening. But it's very, uh, very telling about how much they care for each other that he, even with the easy way out, he, he still doesn't know if he wants to do it. I mean, we get more of it throughout the book as well, where it's, it kind of shows, despite their little differences, that they might be a better match for each other than they really think, because they do very clearly care about each other a lot. And, uh, when you go back and watch the Phantom Menace after this, mm. it's like... <laughs> It makes it even more sad when, when Qui-Gon dies because yeah. you, you see that sort of pure like heartbreak in Obi-Wan, which at the start of the book, yeah. you kind of don't understand. You're like, oh, it didn't seem like they were actually that close. But there's actually, yeah, there's a lot more to it than we sort of really see. And they obviously explain more of that throughout the book.
0: For sure. And, you know, we did see that Obi-Wan kind of conceded to himself that maybe there is something to learn from Qui-Gon, even though he doesn't understand Qui-Gon's ways fully, that he knows that maybe there's something there to learn about being a Jedi that Qui-Gon embodies that Obi-Wan can learn from. But, you know, yeah, like you're saying, right off the bat in this book, you know, we been hit in the face with this massive disconnect but you're right that qui-gon doesn't want to hurt obi-wan obi-wan wants to try his best to live up to qui-gon's expectations he doesn't think that he's meeting up to them and it's just this lack of communication where if they both just sat down and and talked it out i feel like it could all be resolved where they could both realize that they both care about each other and every disappointment they feel every kind of bit of blame that they feel it's all because they just want to be a better person fit and maybe they don't realize how much of a fit they are in different ways in ways that they they clearly don't see yet so it's um you know it's going to be a very tense scene you know when maybe qui-gon has to break this news to him Mm. and just how much hurt there will be on on both ends so in the next scene of this chapter we're taken to pijal in the throne room and we're in the point of view of princess fanry and right off the bat we get the sense that she's restless and maybe a bit lonely because she's thinking about you know we get this image of of her thinking about Pijal's climate and how you know how beautiful of a planet it is but she wishes that she could go to places like Alderaan and Naboo where she's heard beautiful things about those places and she knows they have young rulers which I thought maybe is that Padme on Naboo that she's thinking of she heard of a young ruler on Naboo that's exactly what I thought I was trying to
1: line up the the timing and I feel like it's too early, but maybe it's not because I know that Padme yeah. was sort of elected really, really young. So I yeah. have a feeling, yeah, it, it is talking about Padme there, but I, yeah, I'm not actually too sure on the timeline.
0: Yeah, I forget from Queen's Peril and Shadow of how long, I think maybe it was two years that Padme was queen. I, I forget, but it, that did make me wonder, is this, would the young ruler from the Booby Padme? Because, you know, she was very young. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we get the sense that Fanry is you know because she's surrounded here she's with the sector supervisor from the zirka corporation Merritt cole and she's also with real avaros you know adults here she's the only kind of child in the room and so you know her attention is shifted to Merritt cole who kind of juts into her thoughts here where she's expressing, you know, wouldn't it be nice to travel to these places? And we get a bit about Cole, and I thought this was a very interesting, you know, when Pax and Rahara kind of entered the Pijal system, they n- noticed that clearly the Zerka Corporation has a lot of business and influence here. And we find out here that the sector supervisor from the Zerka Corporation has a seat on the Royal Council. And I thought that, is that like a conflict of interest there? I thought that was kind of suspect where, you know, right off the bat, I, do, I don't really want to trust this. Merritt Cole you know who might have business interests but also has a voice on the on the court I I was kind of thrown off by that
1: yeah that that was the exact impression that I got with uh the Pax and Rahara sort of section where they go into the atmosphere of the planet and they know that there's uh the Zerka like sort of fleet there and they kind of explain them as like I, I don't want to say the bad guys but they're obviously not too fond of them um and so then going down to this sort of scene and you see that here's one of them and they're actually on like the council that <laughs> I definitely was very suspect of that as well. Cause to me, it just seems like someone who's, yeah, like you said, got their own business interests, but they're also in that position of power where they actually sort of um, maybe don't deserve to be. And they're just there because of their business adventures, I guess.
0: Yeah. And, and you do wonder, you know, cause Fannery, you know, she's young. We wonder how kind of malleable and, you know, able to be influenced that she is where, you know, I don't know. It's just an interesting situation where you wonder how much influence either Rail or Merritt Cole could have on, on Fannery. And you feel bad for her. There's a lot of weight of the of the crown on her shoulders. And, you know, we get this image of Rail kind of sitting there. He's smoking a cigar, which <laughs> just a little tangent. He seems like <laughs> the goat <laughs> we already got from his first introduction that he is you know he lives life to the fullest he's nothing that you would consider from you know your typical jedi and he's just there in the throne room just smoking a cigar just <laughs> casually offering fanry some advice he just, he just seems like a total badass
1: he seems like he's kind of getting the best of both worlds where he gets to be a jedi but he also just does whatever he wants at the same time <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is so interesting, and, and we do get an interesting thought from Fannery towards Rail here, where, quote, To Fannery, Avaros had always seemed like a varactyl kept in an enclosure too small for it, uncomfortable, restless, eager to run. And in that image, I see a lot of Anakin in that where rail seems to have a lot of you know we never saw anakin smoking cigars but you know maybe some parallels there with the kind of jedi that anakin ended up being where you know the same kind of restlessness you know he never wanted to be in one place at once he always wanted to get out and and just you know be in the galaxy uh, i just had that little thought there
1: yeah actually i couldn't agree more That now that you've said that 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 does seem kind of in like uh attack of the clones type like yeah he just seems like yeah. he's uh I guess uh, you know, growing up and he thinks he's sort of better than he is and he's yeah, he just wants to get out and <laughs> do it all, which yeah, I get the same same vibe here from Rayo.
0: We can tell that Fanry is kind of annoyed at him because you know, he, she's thinking about dreaming of travelling and trying just kinda of trying to to break the pace of her current situation. She wants to get out and he's kind of grounding her, reminding her that, you know, there's this treaty that he's mentioning that needs to be signed on Pijal. And maybe we can presume it's with the opposition. That was my only thought of who this treaty might be with, either with, with the Zerka Corporation or with the opposition. Uh, we don't know who this treaty is with. But the way he's talking about it, it's a dangerous responsibility. And you kind of feel here for Fannery, where Rael is kind of saying these things to her, and she's this young princess, and she's thinking, "quote but not even he could understand the full responsibility of the crown of Pijal. And this is a lot for a young girl to bear. And from what we're gathering, a tough time to rule. There's this this treaty, you know, we, we've been getting these attacks from the opposition. You gotta feel bad for Princess Fannery. It's a lot for her to have on her shoulders.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of a weird, uh, like, theme within Star Wars that a lot of weight is put on the shoulders of very young children in in this sort of <laughs> galaxy. Like, when you think about both Fanry and, like, the same goes for Padme and even, like, the Jedi younglings, like, they're all... There's so much pressure put on these kids from such a young age and it's such a weird contrast to real life where, obviously, however old Fanry is, no-one of that age is going to be ruling in real life. So it's... Yeah, it's a weird contrast yeah. and it, you do feel bad for them because I know at least... You know, it might be a bit more normal in Star Wars, but at least in this world, that's that's a lot to take on for sure.
0: <laughs> kind of unheard of, yeah. And the situation does get worse. The weight becomes heavier. Where you know they're walking out of the throne room to meet with the Zerka representatives, and this guard bursts in. He's panting. He, he's wide-eyed, and he says, "Quote the moon, Helen Azuka, the opposition again, and it's worse this time. Ominous stuff." They all run to the nearest view screen, and they see that one of the factories on Pijal's moon has exploded. And we get this thought from Fannery here, where she she thinks, quote, "...it had seemed so funny. At first, the idea of the opposition as dangerous terrorists, no one was laughing any longer." my first thought was how is any of this funny <laughs> where it's like a warehouse has been in flames a factory is blown up and she's like oh, that, this all seems so funny." <laughs> yeah
1: i thought the same thing it felt like a they must have thought that they you know there were no threat and then it's this kind of like oh shit moment where it's like oh actually these people keep attacking us and it's a, it's a bit yeah. more serious than we're making it out to be <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that was the only thing I could think of where it's, you know, at first maybe this is a planet that had only known peace and prosperity for so long and that all of a sudden it's, this group is starting to cause some trouble. And, you know, maybe at first it seems like, oh, they can't be anything serious, you know, kind of laughing them off. And, and now it's the situation is getting pretty dire. The Captain Darren, the, the head of Fanry's Guard, says that no one had been killed. And apparently every attack that's happened so far has avoided the loss of life, which I thought was pretty interesting, and especially paired with this information to close the scene, where one of the uh, Zerker representatives says, like, you know, if the situation keeps going south from here, they might consider withdrawing their investments there. And then Merritt Cole kind of steps in and says, you know, and reminds them of how valuable this location is at the hub of a new hyperspace corridor. So... We can gather that there's a lot at stake here, and my thought here was that maybe, you know, if you see that a warehouse has been blown up, a factory has been blown up, but no one's been killed, that maybe the opposition wants the Zerka Corporation out. That was my kind of my only thought here as to why no one has been killed so far, but there's been kind of property damage only.
1: Yeah, that was the same vibe that I got. It almost seemed like a uh, rebel situation where it's you know they're they're the good guys that are attacking and they they're obviously doing it in a way that they don't want to hurt anyone. They just want this Zerka Corporation to be gone. And yeah, that that was the exact vibe that I got because of the way that they went about it. Because obviously, if they were you know truly bad people, they wouldn't have worried about the lives. So. It's a good way to sort of hook the reader in with just that little bit of sort of mystery is like, you know, these people are attacking, but why are they being so safe about it?
0: Yeah, kind of like, what do they want here? And and if we've gathered anything, and if we'll continue to gather anything, especially in this next chapter from this story so far, it's that if you try to paint the galaxy black and white, you're doing it wrong. You know, the motives and interests, and there's just a lot of gray area here. And so, yeah, you do have to wonder, what does the opposition want here if they're going so far to avoid loss of life but they're holding no punches and destroying this property so you know cole was requesting a more thorough investigation and rail avaros kind of ends the chapter telling them to open a channel to the jedi council and i was thinking here we go enter qui-gon and (laughs) obi-wan yeah
1: yeah you obviously get the two sides two different little stories in the in the start of the book and just to tie it together this was clearly where it's where it all started to sort of come together and yeah i think this was the chapter that really hooked me because you kind of get that early stuff with the council and then to end on a note like that where it's you know clearly this is going to have something to do with obi-wan and qui-gon um yeah Yeah. (laughs) it had me absolutely hooked to keep reading
0: kind of like the bridge point here where you can see how this would be the point to enter qui-gon and obi-wan so you know the suspense builds from here and the anticipation builds from here so they're going to reach out to the council and on we go to chapter five but before we do that do you have any closing thoughts on chapter four you know some interesting interactions between qui-gon and the council the tension builds and builds and builds on pijal and we see how much weight is on fanry's shoulders it's uh you know some some pretty interesting developments and you know monumental shifts in the story here
1: yeah it's it's a very heavy chapter i think it's probably like, the whole thing with the council, um, that's really, like, a defining moment for all of Star Wars because, like we were saying earlier, if you if Qui-Gon takes that seat on the council, I feel like everything would have changed. Like, Obi-Wan would have a new master, so obviously Obi-Wan would be probably very different as we see him in the movies. They may have never found Anakin because, obviously, well, I yeah. guess Qui-Gon could have gone on that mission still, but obviously just that whole the sort of butterfly effect of things, he may have never gone there <laughs> and it may have never sort of occur that they found Anakin and even just the fact that yeah like we were saying he really could have changed the way that the council acted I know he's only one guy out of however many there were but the downfall of the Jedi was that they were so stuck in their ways and he really could have been the one that um could have changed that so yeah very heavy chapter even though not technically that much happens it was a very very heavy chapter I thought
0: yeah I I agree with that last bit, especially where so far in this story I would say there's been more character development and kind of setting the scene, laying the foundation, then there has been just, uh, you know, kind of not a lot has happened, mm. so to speak, but it's the primarily like a lot of foundation is being laid for what's to come, which, and that's a, that's a risky kind of move by Claudia, I think, where through four chapters here and some readers might be put off by that, you know, they, if, especially compared to other books that, you know, might be thrown into action kind of quicker, But we're getting our doses here, especially with the situation on Pijal is getting worse. And, you know, now we're seeing the opportunity for the Jedi to come in. And so it's a risky move by Claudia. But I think, you know, for me at this point, I still wanted to know how this was going to develop. And, you know, I I think the risk paid off. I think the reward was pretty good. Absolutely. So I'll give my chapter summary for chapter five and then we can get stuck right into that. Sweet. In the Jedi Archives, Obi-Wan reflects on his current duties assigned by Qui-Gon. While his friends have been going on exciting adventures with their masters, from traveling regularly to other worlds to protect settlements and animals, to studying fascinating phenomena across the galaxy, Obi-Wan has meanwhile been tasked with studying ancient prophecies. When meeting with Qui-Gon to report his day's work, he questions his master as to why he thinks it's important to study prophecies. The two go on to debate the merits and risks of attempting such glimpses into the future. As Obi-Wan is later dismissed by his master to go spend time with his friends, he has the feeling that there is something Qui-Gon is hiding from him. This is a very short chapter, pretty much just Obi-Wan in the archives and then his conversation with Qui-Gon and that's it. But there is a lot of depth here. Before we get into that, do you have any general thoughts on on this chapter? I mean,
1: like you said, there is a lot in such a small chapter. There's a few quotes here that I've got, the sort of uh, prophecies that I thought were absolutely amazing, like such a great addition to the book that it's just a subtle thing in the book. It's not really meant to be much, but they have a lot of sort of depth in you know star wars overall so i'm glad you chose me for these two chapters because <laughs> these I honestly reading them back now i think these may have been two of my favorite chapters in the whole book so yeah
0: there's a, you know a lot that happens with the qui-gon and the council in the previous chapter and then the discussion between obi-wan and qui-gon here we gain a lot of insight into both of their philosophies at their core and it's such a good conversation that ensues so you know let's let's get right into it so the chapter opens with obi-wan sitting in the archives and it's kind of this almost like a comical set of you know thoughts from him where he's thinking about his friends pre and and jp knew them you know when they were younglings and how they're on on these awesome adventures in the galaxy you know forming uh, force bonds with animals and you know studying unarmed combat and studying astrophysics and traveling in the galaxy and there he is in the archives studying ancient languages and ancient <laughs> prophecies where you know, but, but even before we get to that I, I love how we're getting a look at how different jedi interact with the force where you know force bonds with animals and you know studying the force and like unarmed combat and all that i thought that was a pretty you know, it, it was only a few sentences but i always love these insights where we see just kind of the relationship with the force and how the jedi use the force outside of you know what we're used to almost
1: it was very interesting the way that they also said like you know each master sort of has their own i guess hobbies that they you know that's what they prefer to focus on and it's weird that you know they're Kind of has to just be dragged along with that. And, you know, some of them are out there doing these awesome, awesome missions. And poor old Obi Wan's just stuck pretty much in the library just reading. (laughs) That's all he has to do.
0: (laughs) I can definitely see Obi Wan's frustration. It's like, hey, Obi, you want to come roam around the galaxy meeting new species (laughs) and stuff like that? And he's like, nah, guys, I got to go to the library. It's just like, you got to, I can, like, I can definitely see where his frustration comes yeah. from, especially, you know, he's he's still a teenager. Mm. You know, he wants to get out there and, you know, live life to the fullest, you know, a- as much as within the Jedi Code. Uh, you know, he's very stringent about that, but you got to feel bad for him where uh, <laughs> Qui-Gon does have a very mundane, almost, mm. a set of focuses with the languages and the prophecies, and they do have their value, as we'll come to discuss, but... You know, for angsty teen Obi-Wan, it's like, yeah, I, I can relate. I can yeah. relate to that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, above all here, he's frustrated and confused as to why Qui-Gon is so interested in prophecies. You know, one of my takeaways here was that he caught himself right before his annoyance would have turned into anger. And that's the point where I start to wonder how healthy is this relationship with Qui-Gon. You know, and not to Qui Gon's fault, but you know, for Obi Wan here, he's you know, he could, he could very easily, if he didn't catch himself here, he would have gotten angry with Qui Gon, and I'm starting to wonder, you know, if this, and as much as I want this to work between them, you know, would Obi Wan be better off with another master if if he's so if he's walking such a fine line between his emotions here? I thought that wasn't really a great sign.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, you can kind of see what. Qui-Gon was saying earlier about how he he thinks he would be better off with another master because it does seem like it's a like at this point it might not be unhealthy but you feel like if it kept going it might have been sort of an unhealthy relationship where they're just at the point where they're you know essentially sick of each other and you know like Yoda says if he's getting angry that could have turned out <laughs> pretty bad for everyone he might have uh might have been on the dark side with Anakin <laughs> without actually knowing yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't say at this point it was unhealthy, but it definitely seemed like it was on that sort of path to being, you know, mm. borderline unhealthy for both of them, probably.
0: Yeah, and it's it's just interesting to see kind of like the parallels between young Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon and when Obi-Wan's Anakin's master and how Anakin was often annoyed and he was starting to get angry at Obi-Wan as as well. It's interesting to see kind of how Obi-Wan was very much in those same shoes. You know, when he was still a Padawan. But, uh, you know, we move on to the the next scene, still in Obi-Wan's point of view. He's in Qui-Gon's quarters, kind of discussing the prophecies he deciphered in the archives. And we get some really interesting stuff here. I'm just going to read a few quotes, um, and we can talk about them from there. And he's, he's listing off these prophecies that he translated. Quote, "'She who will be born to darkness will give birth to darkness.'" And then, quote, when the Kyber that is not Kyber shines forth, the time of the prophecy will be at hand. And then this third prophecy, quote, when the righteous lose the light, evil once dead shall return, end quote. And then, he also says, quote, and then this whole chosen one nonsense, and just <laughs> it's cut off by Qui-Gon there. So we get a little plug to the prophecy of the chosen one here. I like how that was just thrown in there. Yeah, it's but... almost
1: like he, he palmed it off straight away. Like, that's the that's the least, you know, <laughs> the least plausible one of them all. And he just sort of palms it off when... We all kind of know that, that, you know, it ends up being true in the end.
0: <laughs> yeah, we know what happens there. And I guess we don't have time to discuss, like, all three of these prophecies here that he listed, but I don't know if did, if you wanted to pick the one that stood out the most to you and try to take a stab at it. Like, and the, and the interesting thing is we don't know if these prophecies have come true or not, mm. but that's kind of the fun of it to think, has this happened in what we've seen in the movies or the books, or has this just been a prophecy that never came to light
1: yeah the the first one is definitely my favorite um she who will be born to darkness will give birth to darkness to me that is definitely talking about leia with the fact that Um. born to vader (laughs) and then uh obviously ben you know turns to the dark side so that one was yeah that's about to me i I remember reading that and i actually put the book down straight away and actually went to the (laughs) discord and was like holy shit this is awesome so yeah that (laughs) That's probably my favourite of the uh, of the three that's listed. The the last one as well. The when mm-hmm. the righteous lose the light, evil once dead shall return. That uh I about Palpatine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I to me that almost seems like I mean, there's so many different sort of things that that could be talking about with. It could be anything. Yeah. Yeah. It could just be Palpatine. It could be um, where it says like lose the light that could mean within Anakin, like Anakin was obviously on the light side and then once he loses the light, like the Sith are back. So Oh my god. Yeah, there's so many what? different ways oh. that you could sort of look at it and yeah. What? I mean that's what I love about the prophecies. They're just so you know Holy you can just make up I did not so think many different things. Yeah. <laughs> like and I feel like there's more with that last one. I feel like you could look at that in so many ways um yeah Yeah. i love talking about the prophecies man they're so good
0: yeah because my my thought with the first one my first thought did come to leia though i was kind of confused if you know because i know ben wasn't you know he wasn't evil right off the bat yeah but maybe it's like giving birth to darkness or you know kind of like the darkness that he ended up embracing Mm. and then yeah with the third one i thought maybe like when the resistance lost the light that luke was then palpatine returned i don't know yeah, don't know that was my where that fits thought, with like yeah. the timeline i don't know if he was already back by then so i don't know that it's just it's so fun to think about what these possibilities could be i love that point that when anakin lost the light the sith that were once thought dead returned oh that is yeah that, <laughs> that like really i mean dead. that
1: sent shivers down my spine when i read it i was like holy shit these, these oh are so God. like they're sort of like teasing you in a way because you don't actually we don't know what any of that means I'm, I'm assuming the yeah. t- first one's about Leia but we don't actually know because like you said Ben wasn't dark when he was born and he ends up light as well so it might not even be yeah. about uh, about Leia and then if it's not then that just makes you think well who's it about and yeah it's prophecies yeah, within Star say? Wars are just <laughs> amazing to to discuss because you could like you said we could have have a whole episode on each one of those and you could go for hours about it
0: oh for sure and there's like a lot of uncertainty about the prophecies where you can get caught up on them pretty easily Mm. and i I think that could could be a little transition as to the conversation that proceeds between obi-wan and qui-gon because Qui-Gon's telling him that he shouldn't think of these as nonsense, and Obi-Wan's asking why, because, you know, Master Yoda, quote, has always taught that looking into the future is uncertain at best, which is a fair point. And, you know, Qui-Gon chooses to meditate on his answer, because he, he tells Obi-Wan that he, he wants to give him a good answer, so he takes some time to meditate. And while Qui-Gon is literally just pauses there, he just Puts the conversation on pause. Closes his eyes. Yeah, that's so awkward for everyone. <laughs>
1: he's just sort of sitting there, like, oh, okay, I'll just, I'll just hang out while you're sitting there and sort <laughs> of my thumbs.
0: <laughs> but you know, he, he is looking around Qui-Gon's quarters in the meantime, and he's seeing how many artifacts and objects like that Qui-Gon has collected from his missions from all the worlds that he's been to. We get this awesome quote from Obi-Wan's thoughts, where quote, "No matter how unorthodox Qui-Gon was." Obi-Wan knew he was lucky to have such a master. He just had to find a way to make Qui-Gon feel lucky to have him. And I'm just sitting here, I'm just this is so agonizingly close to 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 see how how close they are to realizing they're more on the same page than they think. And you had mentioned this earlier, that maybe they're more compatible than they think. And we're seeing here that Obi-Wan, you know, when it comes down to it, he's happy to have Qui-Gon as his master, which probably is setting up even more heartbreak and anguish and frustration if Qui-Gon does tell Obi-Wan about his offer to the council
1: like I said earlier it's, it's a sad situation where like there's these two characters that we all love and they kind of just it's not like they don't get along but they just have this weird disconnect between them where they want it to work and they just can't figure it out and like I said I think I think they're closer to it than they actually think. And personally, I think that um, it's a lot of the reason why Obi-Wan was such a great Jedi because of the way that Mm. Qui-Gon sort of trained him. And even though at the time he thought, well, both of them thought, you know, it wasn't quite working. But yeah, I think when you actually look at Obi-Wan by the time he's a master and he's training Anakin, I think a lot of that that he learned from Qui-Gon, even though at the time he didn't really understand it, I think it really does sort of translate to why he was such a sort of well-rounded Jedi and he he wasn't quite, you know, he was stuck in the ways of the Jedi, but he was a little bit more open than, uh, you know, the rest of them, so... Yeah, it's a sad situation, but at the end of the day, I think it actually kind of worked out for both of them, really. Well, I mean, not for Qui-Gon, because he ended up dead, but <laughs> oh. <laughs> it works for Obi-Wan at least. <laughs> oh, that's too soon. It's always going to be too soon. <laughs> We're reading
0: about him in this book, man. Have a, have a heart. <laughs> uh, but we, we do get Qui-Gon finally giving an answer to Obi-Wan's question, and this is where I think it gets really good. Where he says, quote, the Jedi mystics could only predict the future through the prism of their own experience. By asking ourselves how we interpret these prophecies, we discover our own fears, hopes, and limitations. And Obi-Wan, he's pushing back here, he's pointing out how Yoda said to put aside the visions of the future as they can bring a Jedi to darkness. And I'm just gonna read this passage here from the text, and we can talk about his response here, where Qui Gon says, quote, Yes. Seeking to know the future can be a form of control which can lead to the dark side. And learning the forms of lightsaber combat is a way of preparing for violence. Violence, too, can lead to the dark side. We are entrusted with great diplomatic power, which means we exert influence over entire systems. I understand what you mean, Obi-Wan said. Many paths can lead to the dark side. And Qui-Gon answers, as Jedi, we possess power that average beings do not and never will. Holding power over other beings will always require us to be vigilant against the darkness within us. And this was a brilliant response from Qui-Gon. I'd never thought about it like like he laid out here, but this is kind of like one of the pinnacle moments where we see that this different philosophy of Qui-Gon compared to the Order, compared to even Yoda. He's saying that there are other ways, other practices that we do that can lead to darkness. And does this kind of show a short-sightedness from Yoda? Or is Qui-Gon totally right? Or is the point here to show that this is all so complex and that nothing is clear cut?
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of like a little bit of both in that, um, you know, as great as Yoda was, I do think he was, you know, not Perfect in the way that he sort of looked at things, and in saying that, too, yeah, it's so complex that I don't think they could ever really truly understand everything, you know what I mean? There's so much to understand there, and I think, um, yeah. It just shows that no matter how great Yoda and the rest of the council were, they're stuck in their ways too much to actually know that the ways to the dark side that they see, there's way more than that. And uh, yeah, they're just way too sort of stuck in their ways, I think.
0: It's kind of just like hindsight bias or whatnot yeah. where Qui-Gon's talking about violence and, and diplomatic power that can lead to darkness. And we know that's exactly how it played out in the Clone Wars mm. where they became soldiers. They became you know, responsible for these... Systems and uh, and exerting their influence on these systems, and that that led and contributed to their fall, and and I think maybe this shows Qui Gon having kind of like a Dooku like philosophy, where just because glimpsing potential futures can lead to the darkness, doesn't mean that they should be afraid of it, and clearly Qui Gon. He's able to find that balance within him where he knows that it can lead to the dark side, but he's able to mediate that within himself where he's able to study prophecies but not let it consume him. I just thought this was all so fascinating, where he he's pointing out very smartly that they're kind of picking and choosing what they want to prohibit. The the Jedi are where it's like, oh, uh, stay away from prophecies because that you know that'll turn you to the dark side. But train in lightsaber combat, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, be- become you know become a lethal warrior. It's such a gray area. This, this whole situation, it's. It's just so interesting.
1: Yeah, I, that's the thing that I love about Qui Gon is that he he seems way more. I don't want to say like he, he's smarter than the rest of them, but he, he just seems so much more open minded about like how all that kind of stuff works, and it makes yeah it just makes him come across like he has a better understanding than actually those who are technically above him, like Yoda, and I mean all of the Council at this point. Um, it's something that I've always loved about his character that he's so just a unique jedi that we have not really seen before where he's just gives everything a lot more thought than most of the others do
0: you know he doesn't kind of like turn tail at the first sign of the possibility of something leading to darkness which it's just it's
1: it's a fine line to walk i can
0: see where yoda and the order are coming from Mm. it's just so complex it's i don't think there is any right answer Um, no exactly the scene closes with obi-wan asking qui-gon you know how many you know, when Qui-Gon tells him, you know, this is good enough for me for at least a few days, you can go hang out with your friends. And Obi-Wan's asking, you know, how many more trips does he think that he'll have Obi-Wan make to the archives? And we kind of see Qui-Gon break character here a little bit where he's drinking his tea and he kind of like freezes when Obi-Wan asks that. And he has this look in his eye. And he says that they'll talk about that later, along with many things. Which is very cryptic Obi-Wan realizes that he, he thinks quote obviously his master was keeping some kind of secret But it couldn't be anything to do with Obi-Wan himself If it were his master would have told him and I was just I kind of just sat back. I'm like, oh No, oh, our, our hearts have to sing because we realize that it's because Qui-Gon doesn't know how much longer he'll be with Obi-Wan because he still hasn't told him mm. about the council's offer. And it's just, it was just a little bit of a heartbreaking moment where Obi-Wan's like, oh, he would he would tell me if it had something to do with me, right? And we're just sitting there like, nah, nah.
1: Man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, there's so much of that in this chapter and the, the previous chapter where it's like, yeah, it's just these sad little moments that they're so close to being almost perfect for each other. And it's just like, we're nearly there and it seems like it's just not going to work out. So yeah, I, I was the same. I felt almost heartbroken that... Poor little innocent Obi Wan sort of runs along. Ah, it's, it's, it can't be about me, you know. And then he, (laughs) we sort of sit there thinking, well, actually, I think it might be. (laughs) (laughs) The
0: narrator's like, it was in fact about him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we can only guess that if Qui Gon does tell him about this offer, that he's been hiding this from him for, you know, we don't know how much time has passed since his meeting with the council, but. We can almost guess that any progress that's been made between them kind of mending the disconnects will probably suffer a hit when Obi-Wan's like, oh, actually, he would hide things from me, wouldn't he? Um, So it's just kind of a depressing note to end the chapter on. There was a lot of good stuff here um Mm. before we move into the flashback scene yeah do you have any closing thoughts on chapter five with kind of just like a a bombshell of just amazing discussion and insights between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan
1: yeah I mean pretty much similar to what I said in the last chapter like it was a, a, a short chapter and there was so much in there that um you know some of it doesn't even pertain to this story the whole like the the prophecies and stuff that's not even necessarily to do with this story but just there's so many like little bombshells in there that really get you thinking and it's only what it's probably like six or seven pages long and there was just so much in there so like I said earlier it's I'm I'm so glad that you chose these ones because when I was uh, reading that the darkness quote and stuff like that it just Mm. yeah (laughs) fantastic writing I think
0: Uh, it's it's so good and yeah I mean hats off to Claudia you know Mm. the the way she's building these scenes and also just you know these are things that The characters have to think about these are things that you know clearly we can think about for a while and talk about for a while and and discuss. It's just such deep concepts, and the possibilities with the prophecies are endless. And you know, we can see why maybe the Jedi are have become kind of cautious about them because they, you know, if if they kept dwelling on prophecies, they might be forced to start podcasts and have like episode (laughs) series talking about. All these prophecies. So. Yeah. I would definitely <laughs> listen to that,
1: though.
0: <laughs> I need a, a podcast from like Qui Gon. <laughs> um, definitely. Or just, or just some. I, I don't know. Within the archives, I wonder if there was any kind of Jedi podcast. You could almost call I, I, it I, I like wonder.
1: Master and Apprentice or something like that. I reckon that sounds oh like a good God. name. <laughs> <No>. oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's where we're ending the episode. <laughs> Thanks, Virgil. For... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, the audiobook is the, is, the, is the closest thing I've got. <laughs> and so that wraps up chapter five. And then we get the first kind of flashback chapter of this book. I don't have a summary for this prepared cause, because it's so short, but it's you know kind of just like dipping our, our feet into the water of what we can gather that these flashback chapters will be. And we're taken in this flashback to the quarters of master dooku <laughs> with youngling qui-gon and i was wondering like is that i was trying to find a way i don't want to keep referring to him as youngling qui-gon i was like would he be like young Gon Jin, or is that just...
1: <laughs> oh that's definitely the canon name yeah <laughs> not, not <laughs>
0: uh, where he is presenting himself to his new master so this is when Qui-Gon was taken on as Dooku's apprentice, and Qui-Gon's admitting, or I guess Young-Gon is admitting that he is (laughs) afraid. And and Dooku's asking, why should you fear me? Quote, Dooku said in his deepest, most intimidating voice, as though answering his own question. And I was thinking, like, Dooku you have no chill man like even this is like your 11 year old or or however old Qui-Gon is apprentice this is your new Padawan on day one you're asking you know in your most intimidating voice and why should you fear me I was like this is this is so Dooku
1: yeah I I love that how he pretty much answered his own question he knew exactly why he was intimidated (laughs) because he's just probably one of the most intimidating Jedi that there was so I love that I'm a massive fan of Dooku so yeah this this little uh I don't know if you call it the chapter, but the little um, flashback was yeah, amazing. Absolutely loved it. Yeah,
0: for sure. And uh, and props to a young gun where you know Dooku says that he passed the test, admitting that he was afraid that he wouldn't be worthy of his new master. And I was thinking that is pretty much mirroring exactly how Obi-Wan feels towards Qui-Gon in the present day, where mm. he is afraid that he's not worthy and not living up to what Qui-Gon wants him to be. And so there's just so many parallels already in this book with the duo of Pax and Rahara to Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. And now we're seeing just how similar everything is and how how universal these feelings and and these kind of plot lines in our lives can be, where it's it's like it's all connected like the you know it's all connected with the the force it's like this shared experience where Qui-Gon was exactly where Obi-Wan was at one point it's it's just so so interesting
1: yeah and even even the way that uh Qui-Gon like answers that question and he sort of you know passes the test that again just sort of shows how smart he really is the fact that he uh Dooku kind of says like you know not many other people would have answered that way they would have just said what they thought was the right answer, but I think that kind of, again, it's another parallel with the sort of current Qui-Gon, where he just has a different way of looking at things, and you can tell that he sort of had that from a very young age, where his literal first conversation with Dooku, and he's already, yeah, thinking different than everyone else, so that that was a really nice touch there, I thought.
0: For sure, and, you know, we can see how, you know, how these two would be so similar, you know, even mm. at, a, at a young age, you know, Gun is ad- admitting these kind of like mature assessments where, you know, he's he's admitting his fears, which is, it's a very humbling thing. It takes a lot of bravery to admit that you're afraid. And Dooku respects that. You know, I think uh, Young Gun even... Keep laughing at Young Gun. <laughs> um, <laughs> Young Gun even notices that there was like, you know, Dooku kind of smiled when he was clearly impressed with Kwa- uh, Young Gun's answer. <laughs> um, and so Dooku kind of takes Young Gun on a tour of the temple. You know, they're seeing a bunch of different places and they end up visiting the archives as their last stop on that field trip of a day. And Young Gun is looking around at these various holocrons and he asks Duku what a particularly old one in front of him is, and, quote, "...after he spoke, he turned back to Dooku for the answer and was shocked by the expression on his master's face. Dooku stared at the holocron almost as if as if it were an enemy. Dooku said, that is a holocron of Jedi prophecies." And I thought that was really interesting. Like, what do you make of that, where he's looking at this prophecy, at, at this holocron, as if it's an enemy? What, what were your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I actually got the sort of notion that maybe that's what actually started to turn Dooku. Maybe, like the the rest of the Jedi was saying, you know, looking into the future can turn you to the dark side. Obviously, at this point, he hasn't turned yet. He's still He's still good. But that might have been the first look into, like, he clearly isn't a fan of, you know, looking into that anymore. And it's almost like a... You almost look at it like a, a sort of like a drug addiction where he he's, he used to do it in the past and then he's kind of gotten over it and then he you know someone yeah. like offers it to him again and he's looking at it like nah, that's not very good for me so yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's very uh i didn't know what to take of it either whether it was like you know something else than that but that's that was the impression that i got that it's almost like uh in the past that may have been what sort of started to turn him and then mm-hmm. he he sort of stopped he knew that he was going down the wrong path And then eventually, you know, he maybe gets back into it. And that's, you know, eventually what turns him.
0: Yeah. Kind of if he had had previous temptations that had like been ignited again. Yeah. It's just a fascinating little interaction. And, you know, Dooku mentions that the Jedi mystics who studied them were often drawn to the dark side. And uh, Yungan, when they're leaving, asks, quote, just wanting to know the future can lead you to the dark side. And Dooku responds, it takes more than that. His dark eyes were unreadable. And what a way to end this little section. And, mm. and I don't know the timeline of when, if, if Duke had already been giving into temptation at this point, if he had already kind of been tempted by the dark side, because he had already mentioned to Gun to that the struggle with traveling down the path of the Force is eternal. And, uh, and I took that as like the struggle between being pulled by the light or the dark. And I, I just wonder how intense his struggles have been of late, where we, re- you know, here we clearly see that You know, perhaps Dooku had been tempted, is being tempted, but it just makes you wonder if the seeds had already been planted. And, you know, that's how this little section ends off of, you know, on a note of some mystery and intrigue. And we get our first taste of these flashbacks with Young Gan and Master Dooku, which, you know, I was not expecting. I was very caught off guard when I first read this section, but I love it any insight into their relationship, and it seems like we'll be getting more of that as the book goes on. It's just so fascinating.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like I said, is one of my favorites, so the fact that we sort of get a look at, uh, you know, a bit of his past before him in the movies, um, if they have any uh, flashback scenes with anything surrounding Dooku, that's, <laughs> it's going to be very hard for them to mess that up for me because it's definitely very intriguing to see what he was like before he sort of turned...
0: Yeah, for sure. I haven't yet read *Dooku: Jedi Lost*. I've heard amazing things. I really want to get to that, because uh, you know we we don't know a lot about mm. his days with the Order and and what it looked like for him to turn. You know, but we get this first glimpse here of, of his relationship early on with Qui Gon, and a great way to end this episode on that note. Sammy, uh, we've had some really good discussion. Do you have any closing thoughts on on what we've talked about before we wrap this up?
1: I really want to like sort of mention how well I think this is written. I think Claudie Gray has done a like a fantastic job of just keeping you hooked throughout. Like the, there was a lot of times in the the first few chapters that I was kind of like. You know, where's this going? I'm not really that interested, but I feel like at this point, you are almost every chapter. There's there's some sort of, whether it's a bombshell or just some little bit of mystery that she's added in there. Um, Yeah, I think it's just so well written. And I remember like when I read this the first time. I think I finished it in three days, which for me is like. (laughs) crazy because it like it takes me about a month to read a book at this point yeah when i first started reading it i I couldn't put it down it was just so well written and so catching i guess
0: yeah uh, and i'll say it again i love how even though not a lot has happened we have such a captivating foundation yeah and kind of like character development you know it's been heavy character development early on you know with uh doses of moving the plot along to set things up you know as they'll happen but it's just it's different writing from Claudia, especially after you know reading Timothy Zahn and covering Zahn for you know more than half a year that this is a very different change of pace, but I just appreciate how much effort and 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 quality is put into establishing these characters in ways that we both knew from early on in the movies and the other content, but also in ways that we, weren't expecting in ways that we wanted to know more about. So, you know, hats off to, to Claudia and, uh, really some, some great points of discussion today. But yeah, before we wrap up, Sammy, uh, do you mind if, uh, if people wanted to find you on the internet, if they wanted to find your work, do you mind, uh, telling them where they could do so and just talking a little bit about what you do?
1: Yep. So I uh I make sort of Star Wars gaming content on YouTube. Uh, you can find it at Sammy Sammyboy s a m y b o triple i because the the extra I i's for cool points there. <laughs> and on Twitter, I think it's Sammyboy YT I believe um, on Twitter. So yeah, that's where you can find me.
0: Yeah, and, and you do have uh, your other channel, right? Sammy plays.
1: Yeah, I've got a. If you're into any sort of uh, non Star Wars gaming as well, there is a second channel. That I'm running called Sammy Plays. And uh, yeah, you can find me there as well.
0: Yeah, I, I will say. Um, just, I remember how influential and helpful your videos about Battlefront and now Squadrons were to shaping my gaming experience and helping me to become better. So, uh, listeners, if any of you are into uh, Star Wars games or on Sammy Plays, if you're into Call of Duty and Warzone and Battlefield, make sure to also check out the Sammy Plays uh, channel as well. The tips and guides and just uh, discussion videos as well. And just how in-depth Sammy goes into these games uh, to really help the viewers instead of, you know, one thing I appreciate is how you don't really do this for yourself. You do it for the community to help everyone else have a better experience. So uh, I've just been really blown away by that. And listeners, I will post the links to Sammy's uh, YouTube channels and his social media in the episode description. Make sure to check out his work. It is uh, really great stuff, really high quality and I'm sure that you will not be disappointed. So, Sammy, thank you again so much for coming on the show for discussing Master and Apprentice. This was a really fun time, man.
1: No worries, man. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a it's been a blast, and I'm, uh, I'm very keen for this whole season. Actually, it's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. I think. Yeah,
0: <laughs> if this episode and the discussion was any indication of what's yeah. to come, I think it'll be it'll be a good ride. Thank you so much again, man. And before we close up today, I'll give our discussion question for these chapters. Qui-Gon and Yoda's views on studying prophecies clearly diverge. Yoda teaches to tread carefully out of caution of falling to the dark side, where Qui-Gon weighs the benefits against the risks. Which view do you think makes sense for the Order at large? If Qui-Gon were on the Council, do you think he would be able to change their perception of the prophecies to grow closer to his own? And listeners, I will post the question to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and please send us a response on any of those platforms or by email to outerrimreadspod at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay up to date on the show and our discussion questions, feel free to give us a follow on Twitter at Outer Rim read pod and on Facebook and Instagram at outerrimreadspod. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Gahad, is hosted by Andrew Gahad, is produced by Andrew Gahad, is edited by Andrew Gahad, and we will be back in two weeks with episode 24. So until then, sit back and enjoy. Looks like young Kenobi over there could use a break from the books. Why not treat him to a few games of Deja